This is a talk by Jennifer Knight titled Undertaking a Solo Retreat, recorded December 15, 1996, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. I'm going to talk about a retreat I took. I took it in July, and just to give you um, a little overview of the schedule, I went for two weeks, and um, I traveled for two and a half days down to the Big Sur Coast in California, and I stopped at a retreat center called New Camaldoli. It's a Catholic retreat center, and it's run by an order that was founded in Italy. And I did a five-day hermitage um, solo-style retreat there, and then I traveled further north and went down to Ojai and visited several um, communities in Ojai and then back up towards San Francisco. I stayed at Tassajara, which is a Zen retreat center resort. And then I visited a Sufi group in San Rafael and another one in Napa. So the day that I left, Joel gave a talk on retreat. And at the very end of that talk, he gave me a precept ceremony. And some of you I know were here that day. I was really moved that people would um, bother to be interested or take it seriously. It helped me a lot on the retreat at various times. The people seemed to take the whole thing seriously. So I decided I wanted to give something back to you. So here I am giving you my report. So the inspiration for the trip, the first inspiration was this book, Shadow of the Flying Bird. And it's a children's book. It's a Jewish story from the Jews in Kurdistan. And there's a little passage that I want to read to you. It's about the end of Moses' life right before the Jewish people go into the promised land and he doesn't get to go. And his time has come and God's told him so. And Moses says, but Lord, why now? Give me a little longer. My 120 years seem like one short day. And God says, a man or woman's life is like the shadow of a flying bird. Even if you live a thousand years, at the end it would seem but one day. Your time has come. And then Moses does some begging and praying, and that doesn't work. And then he runs about um, the wilderness. Here's Moses, and he's like begging the mountain. Well, you're big, you're strong, you get to live for a long time. Can't you say something to God and help me? And he, here he is again. He goes and pleads with the sun and the moon. And then he goes and... Uh, Again, pleads with the stars. You live for a long time. You're around here for a long time. You've got to help me. You've got to tell God something. 120 years I've been running around, and I'm not done. I'm not ready to go. And they all say, you know, I'm a mountain. I'm here for a thousand years, but when my day is gone, it's going to be like a blip. Like the talk that Joel gave once, the breath of the buffalo, the shadow of the flying bird, the blink in eternity, finito, gone. And everybody tells him that. And then there's some more adventures in the book, which you can ask Joel about. He's got a good mystical interpretation about the rest of the book, which I'm not going to share with you now. But the first time I read this book, and then I reread it a few other times, this just gripped me, this question, am I ready to go? I'm not ready to go. Well, how will I ever be ready to go? I don't think I will be. <laughs> I don't want to go. And it's, it's so true. It just seems like no time at all, and one's whole life is gone. So then another inspiration for doing the trip was I really wanted to do um, a zikr practice, and I had done a mantra-type practice repeating a sacred phrase before, and I'd done it internally. 
And I'd read in uh, Christian tradition and Sufi tradition and Hindu tradition about doing it out loud and the benefits of starting to do it out loud and then progressing more organically to doing it internally in your mind and then progressing further where the heart actually steals it from the mind and it sinks down into the heart. And I really wanted to see what would that be. So how am I going to do this practice out loud? And of course, being married to a hermit that works in the house, he never leaves. So I thought, well, I'll go in the library. He won't, well, he won't hear me. I thought, oh, my neighbor's going to hear me because it's summer and the windows are open and I don't know quite what to do. And I thought, well, maybe I'll go hide in the closet because there's that case of wine in the closet and I'll sit on that and I'll close the door. And, he won't, and then I could vision Joel like thinking, well, where is she? I've got to find her. I know she was here knocking on all the doors and that would be a disaster. <laughs> And God forbid he would like hear me doing it or something so humiliating like praying out loud in words. Especially coming from a Christian background and feeling really icky about uh, God or Jesus or that kind of in your stuff face that you sometimes get from your growing up. So um, still I really wanted to, to do this practice and then I read this book. 40 Days, The Diary of a Traditional Solitary Sufi Retreat, and it's written by a German woman who was raised in Turkey. And she went back to Turkey later in life and did a 40-day retreat, and they locked her in a little room. And she writes about what it was like and doing the zikr practice and things like that. And uh, that just put me over the edge, and I decided, this is it, I'm going, I can do this. It's okay that I haven't been on retreat for a long time. It's okay that I haven't done this practice. I can do this. So I started going to the Zikr group in Eugene, uh, the Sufi group here in town, to get a feel for the practice, what it might be like doing it with a group. And I started using some of the reference books in the library to decide uh, where to go. And I started really honing down on this idea that it had to be a place that was really isolated so that I could just do this practice out loud all day long and not be concerned about who's going to hear me doing this. So once I found that place that had that need, it was easy to fill in with the other kinds of places I wanted to go visit on the rest of the trip. I reread the chapter in Joel's book to see where he went on his travels and what kind of traveling precepts he took and how he did that. I reread parts of the 40-day book. And then I asked one of the um, group leaders at the Eugene Sufi group to give me a zikr practice, which they did. And that was, um, oh, and I should say that zikr is usually either a name of God or a sacred phrase, and it comes from the Islamic tradition. Zikr literally means remembrance. And most Muslims interpret that that you should pray five times a day and you should remember that there is just one God. But then Sufis interpret that that you should be having this remembrance, this prayer to God, or remembering about God happening for you all the time. So it becomes like a continuous prayer, which there are similar practices in Christianity or Hinduism, other traditions. So I asked for a practice, and she gave me a specific one, which is la ilaha illallahu. And so um, that means there's nothing but God or Allah, thou. And then, it, more specifically, the way she told me to do it was when I'm doing the la ilaha, to be exhaling. 
So there's no God or there is nothing on the exhale and but God thou, but God dwelling within the heart on the inhalation. And so that gets pretty breathy sometimes and it does um, work up some energetics a little bit and all that, doing that. So that was the practice that I was doing primarily on the retreat. Also, I took some precepts for the retreat. I vowed to strictly adhere to the ten precepts that our group normally takes and follows each day, and then I took the four additional precepts that Joel helped me design, which I'll read for you. To abandon luxuries, especially expensive meals and accommodations. To abandon worldly distractions, especially worldly media, newspapers, TV, and radio. To abandon judgments, especially of people, food, conditions, and spiritual states, practicing inner silence and outward humility. And to abandon selfish thoughts of worldly loss and gain. So the first test that I had, I was driving out of town, and I planned to get some candy to take on my trip. And I had run out of time before leaving, so I'd just taken the precepts. And I'm already starting to work on this luxury. What's a luxury? I'm thinking, well, candy is not a luxury. I'm going to be driving hours and hours and hours on my own, and I need some little thing in the car to pop in my mouth when I'm really bored. And I thought, well, maybe candy is a luxury. Wait a minute. And uh, I couldn't decide. Is it a luxury? Is it not? Is it, is it not? <laughs> I don't know. So I thought, fine. I, this is what I had planned to do. I ran out of time. We're just going to do it and continue on and not obsess about it. So another little practice that I had was that each time I would get out of the car, I would recite a little prayer called the Fatiha. And the Fatiha is a prayer that Muslims say each time they read the Quran, and they say it five times a day as part of their daily prayers. And it's also the first chapter of the Quran. And it's a prayer to be guided on the straight path and not to be led astray. So I park my car, and I read the little prayer. And I go up, and the candy store's gone. There's not even a sign that we've moved to, which is gone. <laughs> okay, thank you, the straight path, here we go. <laughs> and I, I had little things like that happen kind of all through the trip. The next thing I noticed was preparing for the trip, I was so excited, and Every time things were going wrong at work, I think, oh, it'll be so great. I'll be out there on the road, and the sun will be shining. Everything will be so beautiful, and I'll be so free, and I won't have to do anything or listen to anyone, or I can just think whatever I want. It'll be so wonderful. And then, So here I am driving down the road. The sun's shining. It's so beautiful. I'm thinking, gosh, I wonder if Fred's checking out that book right in the library. <laughs> I wonder if Joel did whatever. <laughs> or, or I'm thinking... I wonder if they'll have the right kind of food at the retreat center. What will I do if the food's really awful and I'm stuck there for five days and I can't get to a little store? So I was really surprised. I wasn't surprised before the trip, having this big thing happening, but here I've been looking forward to it, looking forward to it, and I'm here, and I'm not there. I'm in the past. I'm in the future. I'm anywhere but here. So the next thing I did was stop for lunch, and I went down to about Medford 
before I stopped for lunch, and I had intended to read my spiritual books. I had a couple books with me on the trip, and I had intended to read those during mealtimes to be efficient. And they were all packed in the car, uh, some behind the seat, and then I'd have a pickup truck, so some were in plastic bags and stuff in the back of the car. And it was pretty inconvenient to go get those out. So I thought, well, I'll just go in, have a quick lunch, and leave I won't read today. So I went in, and I'm still thinking about what's a luxury and what's not, and I ordered some fish and chips for lunch, and I put the menu back behind the salt shaker, and I'm sitting there, and there's some older couples, and they're kind of sitting there. It's kind of later in the afternoon, Sunday afternoon. They're not talking to each other. I'm trying not to spy on them or <laughs> listen in. My food hasn't come yet, and I have nothing to do. And then I grab the menu, and I start, like, studying all the different foods that they have on the menu. And I thought, this is a worldly distraction. I've abandoned worldly distractions. What am I doing reading the menu? <laughs> of all things. <laughs> so that's where I adopted my no reading at meals. No spiritual books, no menus, whatever it is. I just sit there and um, notice how comfortable I am when my food's there and I have something to do and how uncomfortable it is to be alone in a restaurant when you have nothing to do. So that was an interesting practice uh, for the rest of the retreat. Also, when the fish and chips came, and I'm, I'm a pretty picky eater, and I don't really care for tartar sauce, came with tartar sauce, and it had no lemon to squeeze on it, and so I asked for some malt vinegar, and they didn't have malt vinegar, and they didn't have lemon. All they had was tartar sauce. I don't really like tartar sauce. But I ate the tartar sauce. It kind of tasted like oh, pickles and onions and... All that stuff that tartar sauce tastes like. And, and this is where I adopted another rule, which was if it comes with a meal, it's not a luxury. And if it doesn't come with a meal and you have to ask for it, it's a luxury for the purposes of this trip. And it's just whatever you order, however it comes, that's what you get. So that was a good, I found that to be a good practice. And whatever came with it, I didn't have to eat all of it, but I had to try everything. So if there was tartar sauce or whatever yucky stuff that I wouldn't want to eat, <laughs> have to try it. Uh, next, I camped at uh, Mount Shasta, and that was a really nice experience. It's a beautiful mountain and beautiful area. And the next morning, I got to practice abandoning conditions because where I was meditating, there were lots of little ants, and I be doing my la ilaha, there's nothing but God, there's nothing but God, and then I'd look down and there's... I think I only had to jump up three or four times. <laughs> so the trip continued and I, the next night I stayed down near Half Moon Bay, which is starting to get down on the Big Sur coast. And then the next day I went to Carmel. Has, have people been to Carmel or have people? Okay. So it's a pretty wealthy town, and I'd heard about it before. The, the movie stars have their houses along the beach there and everything. And Joel had encouraged me, since I'd never been there, to stop in Carmel, walk on the beach, and then abandon abandoning luxuries and go have an expensive lunch in Carmel. And he'd come up with some other ideas that I might want to see Hertz Castle or do this or that. 
And I kind of taken all those things off the schedule, but I thought, Carmel, this will be interesting, and then I can make a practice of breaking the luxury precept temporarily. So I did go there, and for those of you who haven't been there, it's a wealthy town. Um, everywhere that you might want to park your car, there's a tree. It's July in California. Every space that you could park your car, there's shade. So at first, I wasn't so impressed with the shops or things. Maybe you could find in Portland, Saks Fifth Avenue, the Nature Company, and whatnot. But then even when you see the bank, you see First Interstate Bank, and it's in a low, one-story building, and it's like a boutique. So <laughs> Everything in the town is just made so that you wouldn't have the slightest inconvenience or the slightest little ugliness in your vision or, um, or anything. So I found a nice little Italian place for lunch. I love Italian food, and I sat down, and I'm sitting by myself, but it's such a beautiful restaurant. I didn't. This was the one meal that I had that I didn't even notice that I was eating by myself. And I just kept the food coming and coming, too, so I always had something to do. And so they brought a complimentary dish of little tiny Italian olives, and I'm just learning to like olives, and those were lovely. They were wonderful. And then I ordered a soup. It's a very clear broth, and it had beef stuffed tortellinis just nicely floating in the soup. And <laughs> Boy, that soup was so good. And then they brought the salad, and it was mixed organic greens. Just They felt like they were fresh from the field. And then they brought over the pepper, and they ground the pepper on the salad. The dressing was light and perfect and everything. And there were cherry tomatoes on the salad, and I hate those. But I ate them anyway. And there were two, and I ate both. And then the taste, the taste disappears, and I ask myself, am I less happy now, or am I more happy? Now that the taste came, and it wasn't as bad as I thought, and I've had it, and it's gone, am I ready to die now? <laughs> or am I less ready to die? And I couldn't decide. I, neither. Um, so then what's so awful about eating something you don't like? If Either way, it's not uh, making you more or less ready. So anyway, then they brought the penne. And it was so al dente. It was just perfect. It had a Genovese sauce, which is similar to a pesto sauce. But it doesn't have all the cheese and pine nuts grated in. So the basil is really prominent. It was really fresh right from the field. And they said, oh, would you like some Parmesan cheese with your penne? I said, oh, yes, I would love some Parmesan. And they come over with this little thing, and they unwrap this brick of cheese, and they whip out the grater, and they grate the cheese right on my pasta. So fresh. It was so good. And then... <laughs> so I'm sitting there enjoying everything. Tony Bennett's on the CD player, and... Frank Sinatra, and they're cooing about, oh, I left my heart in San Francisco. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, yes, I've left my heart in Carmel. <laughs> and I'm looking around the restaurant, and the, uh, all the imported Italian copper is kind of hanging off the ceiling, almost like it's dripping down. And I ask myself, am I ready to go? I've had this wonderful meal. Am I ready to go? And everything becomes just the more sweet for asking, but I'm not any more ready to go than I ever was before. So I order an espresso, and I order this beautiful-looking dessert, orange sherbet stuffed inside a frozen uh, orange, and it's got a little cap on it, 
and I'm sitting there sipping my espresso with my little sugar and my little twist and the whole thing, and they don't bring the dessert, and my espresso's almost gone, and I really like my espresso with my dessert. <laughs> I don't really want them to be two courses. I think they're trying to serve one course and then the other, but I like them together. My espresso's almost gone, and I think, this is amazing. I'm irritated, just slightly, and I'm impatient. How could this be? I've lost my heart in San Francisco and the <laughs> copper and all this, and I'm impatient. What happens to these people that live here all the time? I don't know what happens to them. <laughs> uh, so I thought that was incredible. And then they did bring the dessert finally, and I ate that, and that was lovely. And then later that day, I drove down the rest of the... Uh, Big Sur Coast, which is beautiful. And I arrived at New Camaldoli, which was the retreat center. And when I drove in, I went to the bookstore and I met one of the monks and he showed me the main retreat house, which is a kind of crescent-shaped house and it had four retreat rooms and then in the middle there was a kitchen and showers and that was shared for all the retreatants. And all the rooms looked out over the ocean, and that's where I would pick up my meals. So breakfast I would make in my room. I had um, toast, butter, peanut butter, jelly, crackers, and tea in my room, as well as running water. And then supper was at lunchtime, and it had several courses with soup and salad, and then dinner was just soup and salad that I would pick up in the retreat house. And then he took me down to my trailer, so my little... Um, Retreat room was actually a little trailer, and it was very isolated from everybody. So, so I didn't have to worry too much about people hearing me. And it's looking over the ocean as well. And I did notice that the road went down further, and there's other little retreat hooches down further. And I kind of thought to myself, gee, I wish I was really far down there, all the way down at the end of the road. But I wasn't. I seemed... It was a nice little hermitage I had. It was, its name was Kairos, and that's from the Latin, and it means time of opportunity. And I sat down and I read the little rules about what time vigils and vespers are and when you're supposed to be quiet and where you can go and where you can't, things like that. And I read about the um, animals and that I might see deer and this and that, and there might be mountain lions, but nobody's ever seen them, but sometimes they hear them or whatever. And then I went up for dinner. And I had a little, what they call a Japanese lunchbox, and it's little stainless steel cylinder things, and they stack three in a little carrier case, and I took that up. And I got my soup and uh, salad, and I went back, and I had this dinner, I guess. <laughs> so <laughs> it was like lettuce, just like iceberg lettuce. And then Hidden Valley Ranch fat-free dressing in a plastic bottle. So like, Hidden Valley Ranch, boo. Fat-free dressing, boo. <laughs> it was in a plastic bottle, boo. <laughs> this is supposed to be an Italian order. <laughs> and then the, the pepper, you know, it's just like from the grocery store in a shaker, shook it on my salad. And then the soup, Creamed corn soup, which I wouldn't normally even eat creamed corn soup anyway. But then Horror of Horrors, it had celery in it, and then it had onions in it, which I wouldn't eat celery, and I especially would never eat onions. <laughs> I had to remind myself that there's people in the world that, 
you know, wilted uh, iceberg lettuce and cream corn soup, this would be a luxury, and I'm lucky just to have a meal like this. And I'd have to remind myself a lot during that meal. <laughs> I also had uh, one piece of wheat toast, and they did have real butter, so I had the butter on the wheat toast, and I just plain kind of grocery store preserves, no homemade preserves or whatever, and a glass of water. And I ate that meal, and before I did my dishes, I asked myself, am I more ready to go now or before? Now that the taste has evaporated from my mouth, what is making me more happy right now, lunch or dinner? Well, dinner. Because I'm full. After lunch, then now I would be hungry. Dinner is making me definitely more happy. But am I more ready to go now or before? Neither. Neither got me any further than the other. So what's the big deal about eating or our preferences? That we get the thing that we want and then we have to have the thing that we don't want or or whatever. Um, I don't know. I can't figure that out. So, then I'm ready to describe the schedule a little bit. It's here. It didn't start out quite as filled in as it is now, because, like, I didn't know how long vigils would be. So, I'd kind of thought maybe half hour for these two things and a half hour for this. Originally, I'd thought a half hour for the reading. But some of the things I had to pencil in as I went, but as I refer to it, um, you can look at that there. And then I'll describe the trailer a little more. It was a two-room trailer. I had a main room and a bathroom. And on this end, I had a twin bed going across the trailer with just enough room to slip my suitcase down at the end of the bed. Then there's the door of a little kitchen sink with a window, a toaster, and a hot water maker, and a little draining thing for my dishes. There's a bathroom right over about where Joel is. Then there's some little cubbies where I can slip my clothes and um, books and things. Then there was a little table and another window, and that table I promptly took out to my porch so that I could look at the coast each meal. And so I ate all my meals out on the porch. And then next to the bed, there was a little stainless steel lamp with three little light shades, and they would twist into any kind of position one would want. So the first day I went to the um, Vespers and meditation with the monks, six to seven, and I went to the dinner, seven to eight, but I decided not to get any heavier into the discipline of the schedule until the next morning because I still, I was kind of tired and had been traveling that day and everything, so I counted it as a traveling day. And then I'm just getting ready to go to bed, and I hear this child screaming outside, screaming, screaming. And I run to my cabin door, and I open the door, peering out there, looking. Who would bring a child to a retreat center on the mountain, on the Big Sur Coast? I can't believe it. I'm looking for this child. Mm -hmm. And I hear more screaming and screaming, and my blood is starting to feel like it's curdling. And then I hear this big snarl, growl, and then this horrible death wail. And I'm standing there with my trailer door wide open, and I think, holy cow, that is a mountain lion. That was a mountain lion, and it just killed something. And I'm standing here with the door open. So I slam my trailer door closed. 
And I turned on the outside light, and I turned on the bathroom light, and I turned on the overhead light, and I turned on all three little lamps on my bed nightstand lamp. I sat on the bed and I took the, a shawl that Joel gave me and I wrapped that around me so that were going to protect me or something. <laughs> and I sat there for about a half an hour thinking, okay, you're breaking the precept, you're wasting the resources that beans depend on, you're wasting the resources that this retreat center depends on, all this electricity is running on a generator, plus you're having thoughts of worldly loss and gain. You've abandoned thoughts of worldly loss and gain. It's just a body. It's just a luxury. Who cares? And besides, you're in a trailer. Come on. (laughs) So I had to do that for um, about half an hour before I could really get myself calmed down enough to turn off the lights and everything. Besides that, in the following days, I saw deer, quail, raccoons, possum, and I had a little fox that visited me a few times. Um, the first night I, that I saw it, I saw this mysterious thing peeking in my window, my kitchen sink window, and I peeped out the door, and there was a little fox, and he was so cute. We developed a little relationship, and I'd save some of my food for him, and he was a lot like Cinder, our little gray cat, kind of spry and leaping around a lot and very curious kind of animal. That was a lot of fun. The chapel there was beautiful, and they had imported big column cypress from Italy surrounding the chapel. And when you go in, it was rectangular shaped, and the monks sit in two rows facing each other. And then there's, um, I think it was an eight- or ten-sided building off the main rectangle of the chapel, and that's where they would have the host waiting or some of the ritual items. And then in the evening, after they did the evening service, you could meditate in that room with the monks, and that was really nice to go in there. And they did some little ritual with the host that was moving, but which I don't understand all of. They also, in the evening time at Vespers, they did a Marian ritual. And, and the uh, more circular, ten-sided room, there were hallways on each side going down it to these mysterious little alcoves. And down one of them, there was a bigger-than-life-size icon of Mary, the mother of God and of Jesus. And they would go down there and, in Latin, with the monks and the lay people mixed together, sing this song and sprinkle water and stuff. And I I have no idea what it meant, but it was so beautiful, the uh, ritual itself. And then it was so moving to see all these people in tears doing this ritual, and they all seemed to know it. Even the lay people seemed to know the Latin and everything. Vigils in the morning. um, So let's see, that was 5.45 to 6.30. So that was pretty early in the morning. And that was moving as well. And like I said, the monks were sitting in monastic style in two rows facing each other. And they would recite whatever they were reading that day. And maybe one side of the room would do a line and the other side would respond or maybe one side would read for quite a while and then the other side would read for a while. Um, I'm not that familiar with the Bible. They were doing the Psalms, which I haven't read either. And a lot of it was about smiting the foes. And uh, we're wandering around the deserts and God come down and smite our foes. And for the most part, 
I didn't find it that helpful, but I liked the style of not trying to tell you what it meant, of just reciting the words and letting them go by. Because sometimes I did find just a few little words in a sentence or something would kind of pop up and would relate to something that I was reading in a roomie and whatnot. So I did overall enjoy that part of the retreat. So my first major day of retreat... The first spiritual practice I would do in the morning on my own was a practice 7.30 to 8 called Sending and Taking, and that was a practice that the Wednesday group was doing. And basically, you start with your mother, and you think about all the good things she's done for you. She's consented to give birth to you. She's raised you. She's gone through struggles for you. She loved you. Even if your childhood was bad, there would be things that you could think of that she's made some kind of sacrifice for you. And then you think about how she's suffering now. And my own mother was preparing to go in for open-heart surgery. So I thought about that, and I thought about mean things I'd said to her as a teenager and various stuff. So the practice is you think about the things that they've done for you, and you generate compassion for them, and then send out that compassion (coughs) to them is the sending part of the sending and taking. And then when you think about the trials and tribulations or suffering that they're facing now, and you take those back on yourself. So I did that with my mother. I didn't have any particular thing come up around it. It wasn't especially easy or especially hard. And then I was doing some of my roomy reading, which I wanted to read a little bit for you. Behold a world apparently non-existent, but existent in essence, and this other world, apparently existent, but without permanence. God has made non-existence appear existent and respectable. He has made existence appear in the guise of non-existence. He has hidden the sea and made the foam visible. He has concealed the wind and shown you the dust. So I felt that that fit in a lot with how are you ready to, to die, am I ready to go or not, and wanting to cling to this world, and then what he's saying is this world doesn't even exist, this isn't even the real world, it's the foam, it's the dust, it's not the sea or the wind. And then I also found that reading helpful in like eating my breakfast with the foxes or the quail and maybe wanting to sit on my porch and think about the sea that I'm seeing out there and the animals, those are the foam and the dust. I'm here to figure out the real sea and the real wind and um, to go inside and try to find where those things are. So the first day, I had done just half hour reading and I was going to try to do 8.30 to 12.30 of Zikr. And I hadn't quite figured out how I was going to do three hours or so of Zikr straight. And I noticed that my mouth was no longer going. And I'd kind of shake myself and start going again. And I noticed that happening again. And then I thought to myself, you know, this happens to people. They do zikr for weeks and weeks and months and months, on and on and on. And then suddenly they can't form the words anymore, and it starts to go organically into the head or down into the heart. But this is my first day 
I've only been at this a couple hours. <laughs> Seems pretty strange. So I tried to get myself a little more energized and going again. And then pretty soon I noticed not only are my mouth not working, but I'm laying on the bed. <laughs> and I had to say to myself, Jennifer, what are you doing? You're taking a nap. And um, <laughs> get going. So that didn't really click well that first morning. And then that afternoon, I was trying to go again. Okay, now I'm going to do this other big session and the room is getting stuffy. It is July in California, after all. And I'm getting sleepy again. And um, I think, oh, I've got to get the air moving through this place. It is so stuffy and warm. And I'm just going to roast in here, and I'm going to be asleep again. So I grabbed one of my chairs, and I opened up the windows and the door, and I sat out on the porch, and I did the zicker internally. And the porch has a little um, roof on it, so I was in the shade, and the air kind of blew through the place. But I realized after trying that for a couple hours that I was far more distracted. The reason that they say you should do it out loud is while it's kind of intimidating, you have your voice to listen to, you can think about the meanings of the words. It's much more obvious if you've lost where you are. Because as you're listening to yourself go, you know if you've stopped talking unless, of course, you're falling asleep. But most of the time you know. Whereas if you're thinking something repeatedly in your head and then your mind starts off on some other track, it's gone and you don't know for a long time. So I could see that this whole first day was a disaster and um, <laughs> I really hadn't figured this out yet. Um, I also noticed that whenever I was doing zikr, I wanted to be out with the quail, I wanted to be taking a walk, I wanted to be down at the picnic table, I wanted it to be dinner time. But then when I got out to take my walk, I wanted to do zikr. And when I got to dinner, I wanted to do zikr. So the mind wasn't so all over the place that it was in the car, because everything was more confined. But it was still, I wish I were here. I was never where I was supposed to be. So the second day came... And I did sending and taking on my mother again. And again, it was not particularly easy or hard or anything um, happened with that. And then that day I started to make adjustments to my schedule. I had planned to eat Vipassana style. And so when I'm toasting the toast, I was noting that I was toasting the toast. Then when I was buttering the toast, I was noting buttering. Then I was noting getting out the jelly. And then I was noting jelly in the toast. And all this was taking much too long. I just didn't want to spend that much time on breakfast. I'm, I'm here to do zikr. I'm not here to do vipassana. So um, stay on track, as Karen likes to say. <laughs> Um, so I shortened my breakfast time, and then I increased my roomy reading time because I was finding that really fruitful to a whole hour. And then right in between there, I took a 10-minute tea and bathroom break to get a little caffeine going in my system before I tried to sit down and do that long, long zikr session again. So this is what Rumi said to me that morning. Does anyone write upon a written page? Does anyone plant a sapling in a place already planted? No, he searches for a paper free of writing. He sows a seed in a place unsown. Be, O oh brother, a place unsown, a white paper untouched by the pen. So I liked that phrase that morning. I knew 
It's kind of poetic and nice, but I knew it was also an instruction about meditation. And it wasn't so much of like, do this or don't do that, but it was an instruction of how you're supposed to be in meditation. What would it be to be a place unplanted? What would it be to be a blank piece of paper for God to come and write anything on me? So that's what I struggled with that morning in Zikr. And it it went a little better. I did find myself again near the end really wanting it to be over and being really tired and really ravenous, strangely. After the Zikr sessions, I was very ravenous. So that afternoon, I thought, well, I'll split my walk time in half and I'll walk down to the picnic table and I'll read my roomie down there and then I'll walk back up and that'll kind of energize me a little more, keep the air moving through the cabin longer. And then I got down there and it was so lovely and I thought, well, I'll do my zicker down here. So no one will be coming down that road. What will they know? Or I'll see them and then I'll just do it internally and no one's going to hear me. It'll be okay. And I'll just do it down here. And um, then I was reading in Rumi. Be joyful with him, not with others. He is spring, but others are like January. Everything other than God is leading you astray. Be it your throne, kingdom, and crown. And I thought, well, if I was a king and my kingdom was leading me astray, surely this picnic table is leading me astray. And now where we have to go is back up to the hooch and somehow figure out this long, long session. So I thought about when I'm at the Eugene Sufi group, how do they do this for two hours? Well, they have a drum and they have a harmonium and they have a tambourine. Of course, that all makes it easier than just doing it by yourself. But also, they don't just sit there in meditation posture the whole time. They sit and then they stand and then they walk around the room or they do some in movements and circles. And I thought about when the center goes on retreat, they don't just try to sit there on the floor for two hours. They do sitting, and then they walk back and forth, and then they do more sitting, and then they do more walking. So the second day in the afternoon, I started doing that. And I found that to improve it greatly. And it was easy to just get up and sit somewhere else without even stopping doing the zikr, and I had my little prayer beads. So things started going better that day. Day three, I did sending and taking on my enemy, and it's supposed to progress from your mother to people you have lesser benevolent good feelings for to people you're more neutral towards. But I didn't have as much time on the retreat to really go through all that, so I went straight for the enemy thing. <laughs> and and uh, I was ready to go kill her, really. <laughs> Just, started thinking, well, okay, let's read what the book said. And it said, well, this person's there giving you an opportunity by pushing your buttons to see all kinds of things about yourself. And they did it intentionally. All they're getting is bad karma for themselves. And you should be having compassion for this person. And I would read that and I'd sit there and I'd try to think, no, but she said this in this meeting with all these people and it was so embarrassing. And then she did this to me and then she did that to me. And... Uh, Oh, I hadn't been thinking about work for days, and now work was <laughs> in the mind, just going, going, going. Um, I also made some other little adjustments that day. 
I added the formal nap time because I was falling asleep anyway. Might as well just say, this is the zikr session, this is the nap session, and um, continue on with the plan. And then I also decided that the dishwashing at every meal was taking too long. It was like the Vipassana eating thing, trying to note, spreading the butter and all that. It was just taking too much time. And there weren't that many dishes anyway. With only soup and salad for dinner and a piece of toast for breakfast, there's just not that many dishes. So I just started stacking the dishes in the sink, and then each day at the main meal I would wash the dishes. And then originally in the schedule I'd had, oh, various things mixed in together. Like I would take a walk, I would write in my journal, and this and that, and I said, no, the walking is here, the walking is there, and the journal writing is dedicated there, and I just will forget it at the other times. So that day I read a lot of Rumi, where he's talking about annihilation, and he's talking about the Shahada. And um, the Shahada is a phrase that a Muslim would say to become a Muslim, and it's the phrase that was my zikr, la ilaha illallah. And it means there's no gods but one God. There are no idols and statues and all this pagan worship except for the one God, Allah. And then the Sufis take that and they say there's nothing but God. There's not you and me and all these myriad little things. There's just Allah. And so then Rumi talks about it further and he says no God but God. Complete annihilation. There's not even some mysterious energy out there. There's not even some weird idea that you have of the divine or God or whatever that is. There's just but God. There's just annihilation. And so I, day three, I'm thinking I've got day three and day four to get vigorous here. You know, I've, I've kind of messed up, but I've got this figured out now. We've, we've got to go. Time is short. So I'm reading Rumi, and I start reading it out loud because I find that really gets me excited and ready to do zikr. And I read, um, he's quoting from the Quran, All things perish except his face. Since you are not in his face, seek not to exist. And then about that phrase, Rumi says, All things perish no longer applies to him who is annihilated in our face. For he is in but God, he has passed beyond no God. So I thought, wow, this is an instruction about my zikr. Pass beyond no God, get into the but God. Pass beyond everything, whether it's multiple gods, whether it's no other people or me exists, whether it's subtle ideas about God. Let's go for the but God. So that day, to get through three hours of zikr without stopping, I started on the floor, and I started really slow, and I started with an alternate zikr that's more sweet than what we were doing today and than my primary practice, and it was um, about the mercy and compassion of God. And I tried to kind of bring up some mood and devotion, doing a real slow, sweet one. And then I started doing my, um, there's nothing but God on the in-breath and out-breath and doing that vigorously. Then I took a really quick little break to use the bathroom. 
and back at it again for about another hour or so. So I'm two hours into it, and the room is getting stuffy. And now it's not so sweet. And uh, I'm ready to stop. It's not time to stop. And I start walking and this and that. And then I stand up, and there's an icon in my room, an Eastern Orthodox icon about so big, and it's of St. George, and he's killing the dragon. And I'm looking at it, and he's slaying this worm, and I'm thinking, that's the ego. <laughs> Annihilate me. There's nothing but God. And I just start doing my zikr in front of this icon and trying to bring back up that river. And then I did some alternating sessions with doing it really vigorous and vocal, and when my voice would start to go, kind of slowing down and going a little quieter. And I started to find in this period that the trip precepts Abandoning luxuries, abandoning worldly loss and gain, abandoning judgments of people or conditions or whatever. Instead of being modifications for behavior or what I might and might not do, they started to become antidotes for the meditation. And so I could start labeling the categories of distraction I had based on um, that it was a worldly distraction or it was a thought about loss and gain or this and that. So it was really interesting to see those shift around for me. And that day after Zikr, my mind started to feel really clean and kind of get to a nice, quiet place a little bit. So day four came, and this was my last day to really go for it. And I didn't think that I was going to get enlightened or anything, but I really wanted to belt this out before um, having to be around people and having, again, this concern about should I go hide in the closet or how will I do this or whatever. So I did the three-hour session in the morning, and then that day I got so excited. In the afternoon I nixed the journal writing session and did another three-hour session there. Then that evening I took my usual walk, and one of the fellows that was a monk had been um, helping me during the vigils and vespers because you're following along these books and they, on the feast days they go one place and on the normal days they go someplace else and it was so confusing and I was constantly lost. Everyone else seemed to know where they were going but I was constantly lost. And so on each side of the room there was a monk assigned to helping the idiots <laughs> couldn't figure out where they were supposed to go next. And so there was one monk that had gotten me straightened out a number of times, and he was out taking his walk and started talking to me. And previously, sometimes in the retreat kitchen, there would be a monk or a retreatant, and they would talk a little bit, and I would really try to avoid people. But I felt like, okay, I've put in my four big days of effort, and now the discipline is it's not waned completely, but it's starting to come down a little bit, and it would be okay to talk to him. So we talked quite a while, and I got to ask him about his vocation and how he became a monk. And then I got to ask him the burning question on my mind, which was, if I go to Mass tomorrow, can I take communion? Because I'm not Catholic, and I was raised Episcopalian, but I don't even consider myself that at this point. And he told me that the Pope or different bishops have different feelings about it, and some will say that you must be Catholic, and not only that, you must have had a confession in the last year to be able to take communion. But his feeling was, it's the body and blood of Jesus, and it helps everyone. So, he said to question my conscience about it and decide based on that. So that next morning, 
I missed the vigils, but then I got up and did some of my other practice, and then I started breaking the retreat and started pa packing up some of my things, and I did go up to the Mass, and it was so beautiful. Before the monks came out, the lead cantor came out, and the whole community was there, just two little towns near the monastery, and they, this is the church where they all come for service on Sundays, and they came out and they explained how the monks do it and about the monastic pause, because when they get to the end of a thing, then they pause quite a long, uncomfortable time before they start the next thing, and sometimes people aren't used to that, and they explained what the, the uh, various songs meant, and we practiced singing them, and then the monks came out, and all week I'd been wondering about all these people crying during these masses and smiting our foes. I mean, it's just not that moving. <laughs> but this mass, the whole mass was so beautiful. And I did take communion and I bawled the whole time. And by the time it was over, I was not ready to go. It was like... God, take me. I want to be a Catholic. I'm ready. <laughs> and, uh, oh, it just, it was so hard to leave. So then, let's see, from there, it took me two days. I went down to Ojai. I visited the Ojai Foundation, which is kind of an eclectic, spiritual, land based community, and it was one that Joel went to on his trip. And I, I picked up some literature and took photographs of places, so I do have some stuff on Ojai if you want to look at that. I visited Cretona, which is a Theosophical Library and Study Retreat Center, and I've got some stuff on them. And I tried to visit the Krishnamurti Foundation, which is in Ojai also, and it was closed both days, so I didn't get there. And then I went to Tassajara, which is a year-round... Zen Buddhist Retreat Center, and in the summer it's also a resort. And so you stay there and you do the Japanese baths and their mineral baths, and that was a really lovely experience. And then you go swimming in their Olympic pool, and they've got a little restaurant and the meals included in the package, and the monks wait on you and everything. But also you can do chores if you want to. You can go to the meditation hall, and they have an instruction about the rituals. Excuse me, the rituals they do in the hall and... So it was kind of half social and half very mindful meditative place, and it was a really lovely experience. By the time I was ready to leave there, I was ready to be a Buddhist. <laughs> the uh, meditating, looking at the blank wall, and just sinking down into the body and the breath, and all the little rituals, and which step you go into the zendo on, and which step you come out of the zendo on, and all these little things for your mindfulness. Buddha, take me, I'm ready to go. <laughs> so then I stopped in at a group in San Rafael, Sufi group, and um, I've got some tapes of them if that interests anybody. And then I went to go see a sheikh that I heard last spring give a talk at a conference down in San Francisco. And I had written to the group before and told them I was coming and asked them what kinds of things I needed to be prepared for. And they'd said, well, we're Muslims. When you come, you need to wear a long sleeve shirt. You need to wear long pants or a almost floor-length skirt. When we do zikr, you'll need to wear a scarf on your head. We do wudu, which is the ritual washing of the hands and feet and all before we pray and this and that. So... 
I had kind of packed some more formal clothes in my suitcase near the bottom and was ready and I got up there and I kind of arrived more or less like this kind of casually and I didn't expect them to be there. I arrived to make sure I knew where it was and to tell them I was there and then get directions to the house where I was staying. And their little meeting room was behind a pizzeria and it was confusing whether I was supposed to drive behind or come in the front or whatever. So I get to the pizzeria and they're all there, they're all waiting for me, the shakes waiting for me, and they run the pizzeria. This is what they all do, it's their <laughs> practice and everything. And uh, so I felt kind of, you know, strangely attired to be doing this, but I got to meet Tanner, and he said, well, you know, what's on your mind, what do you want to ask me? And I said, okay, I've read this children's book, it's a Jewish story, it's from these Jews in Kurdistan, and it's about Moses' last day, and he says, I'm not ready to go, and he goes and begs everything, they say, well, sorry, we can't do anything, and, uh, you know, our life is so short, and, and we're not ready, how am I going to be ready? And beyond that, I've been thinking about impermanence for a long time, and I've been reading Rumi, and he's talking about the existent and the non-existent and impermanence, and how do you be ready, but how do you even know what to do with your life? Why should I be nice to anyone? I'm going to be gone. The niceness is going to be gone. They're going to be gone. Whoever they do, whatever to, is going to be gone. Why should I be mean to anyone? Why should I do meditation? Why should I do this? Why should I do anything as opposed to anything else? If ultimately every single scrap of it is impermanent in the end. And how will I be ready to go? So he starts talking. And I... I don't really remember what he said. It wasn't, didn't really grab me. I thought, oh, he didn't really get my question. Well, that's okay. I did good zikr practice on the retreat. That's okay. And he went off and performed a wedding. And I met his uh, wife. She was a young Turkish woman. And I'd seen pictures of her in, in their newsletter. And... Then she left also, and I was left reading some of their books, and I was reading a book um, that's just for their dervishes, and that was interesting, and a lot of stuff about all the little rituals and that they do. And Then I met his daughter, and I thought, gosh, she doesn't look very Turkish, and she's pretty old to be the daughter of this young wife. And I met the little kids, little boys that he had, and they were all very Turkish-looking, and that was interesting, and then everybody came back, and he had several assistants, and they're introducing everyone to people, and there are several other new people there. And then somebody comes by and says, oh, this is Sheikh Tanner's wife, Elizabeth. And I'm shaking hands with this woman, and I'm thinking, now, am I really confused? This is an American woman. I met his wife. This is not his wife. And, and, and I, but I politely shake her hand, and they take her on. And then they say to someone else, oh, this is Sheikh Tanner's first wife, Elizabeth. And I think, wow, this Sheikh has two wives. They do that over there, don't they? And I just could not get over. Well, how do they figure all that out? How does the first wife get along with the second wife, and how does she feel, and all this stuff? And I thought, this is... Judgments about people, and we have to abandon this. This is in the precepts, so I had to try to let all that stuff go. And then 
he started to give a talk that evening before the zikr, and he started to get back into my question. And most of the talk I don't remember, but he starts honing in on it, and I could tell he really did get the question. The stuff he was telling me before was the preliminary stuff, and now he's drilling down on this question that I asked him about. How, you know, how am I going to be ready, and should I do this or that, be this way or that way, or why be any particular way? And at the end of the talk, he told a story about an apple tree. And so the tree grows, and you give it some water, and it gets some sun, and it has some soil, and it doesn't have to agonize. It's an apple tree. It's going to make apples. It doesn't have to say, I want to be an orange tree. Maybe I should make pears. Maybe I, I want to have plum flowers. Maybe I shouldn't fruit it all. It's just its very nature. It's just the way God made it. It's just the way that it is from the beginning to be that way. And mentally, I don't know, it doesn't quite... I'm not sure it's philosophically satisfying, but at the time, and still, it just put this question in my heart to rest. I'm still not ready to go, but I don't have to wonder, should I be on the path or not, or should I do this practice or that practice, or if everything's impermanent why even do spiritual practice do it because that's what i am that's what i was made to do that's what i was made to realize so all that existential kind of angst that i was feeling about it went away then i stayed with he and his wives and sons um, that evening and kind of got to watch how their household worked a little bit and everything I had breakfast with them the next morning and the tomatoes came back to haunt me the next morning. The first wife, Elizabeth, said, well, what would you like for breakfast? And trying to be the non-obtrusive guest, I said, oh, well, whatever Shake Tanner's having is fine with me. She said, great, he's having raw tomatoes and feta cheese. <laughs> <laughs> great, I'm having raw tomatoes and feta cheese <laughs> for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my last little chance to um, abandon judgments about food and everything. And it really wasn't bad. They were good, actually. I was surprised. So then I had another little chance to talk to him. And they're all kind of waiting for me to say, oh, I want initiation and everything. And I've been asking him about Zikr the day before. And instead I told him that I wasn't ready to ask for initiation but that I really appreciated his talk, and it really, um, it really answered in my heart the question that I was asking. I thanked him for that, and then he said, "Well, if you're not going to ask for initiation, I'm going to give you the zikr practice anyway, and I want you to start doing this." And I'm not going to read it to you, but I have it all written out. It's a more complicated thing that I was doing before, and it's got 101 repetitions of this one and that one, and then 301 of another one, and they all mean various things, and they're supposed to operate on different levels of your ego, different parts of the phrases. Um, so he did go ahead and give me that practice, and I felt really honored that he considered doing that since I was declining the initiation. And it also felt like the last piece of the trip had just fallen in place and that the whole thing was really done. And I was so close to being ready to say, 
oh, I'm ready, take me, I'm going to be a Sufi now. (laughs) Something just kind of held me back. And so George said, oh, why don't you come back for Enlightenment Day? I could use you to help me set up the house, and you could help be hostess. There might be extra people. I thought, oh, he can figure that out. They, They can miss me two Sundays. It won't be the end of the world. But this last thing just fell into place. There was no place else to go. There was no other teacher to see, no other retreat center. So I just bought myself some prunes and um, some olives and hit the road and drove straight through back to Eugene. So I got to hear this wild talk on Sunday. And here was this one teacher. There's like no ritual, which I must say, I do love the beauty and everything of ritual. The, there's no like big, huge altar and all that, no big, huge statue of Buddha, which I find kind of moving. But here's this one teacher, and he talks like about Buddhism and then Sufism and this and that. And I think, I can be them all. I don't have to decide. I can be here. And plus, it had that, um, it clicked in my head, the way that it all fit together. So I did get to hear this little-known mystic of Eugene <laughs> to kind of complete my trip. So in summary of the uh, retreat itself, the result that I really wanted was to be comfortable doing that practice, and I am comfortable with it now. And when I do it now, Joel, sometimes he'll be in the living room most often, he goes upstairs, and I go in the library and do it, and I don't worry so much about who's going to hear me doing it and all that. There's still a little bit of that, but not to the um, extent that there was before. Um, I really strongly related to the Rumi book that I was quoting you from, and Rumi's a famous Sufi mystic, and most of his stuff is poetic, and I didn't expect it to be so instructional. I expected it to be motivating and beautiful, but I didn't expect to find things in it that I could continue um, honing the practice with. So that was a surprise. And then I was also surprised to find this relation between inquiry and devotion, and that when I'm doing this devotional practice and trying to follow these rituals and stuff, what came up for me all the rest of the time was this strong inquiry. And somehow the stronger the zikr practices and prayer and everything got, the stronger the inquiry became, and being able to ask myself you know, things about the bite that I was eating at that moment or whatever I was seeing and then the moment after it was gone, and the meaning of all that. So that surprised me quite a bit. Since the retreat, I think it's been about six months now, I feel that my resistance to meditation is different than it was before. I still work full-time. I still find it hard to get up in the morning. So all that kind of resistance is still there, but I don't have this internal warfare going on about should I meditate or should I not meditate or does a secret part of me want to meditate or which practice will it be. I also feel just somehow I'm more comfortable or having a limited view. It seems like this is what I live in and it's more okay. I don't have this constant feeling of I'm such a horrible person I need to escape myself. How could I claw myself out of here? It's more okay. I don't feel so much self-loathing. I got to watch Panic this morning and and feel what Panic was. But even that, it was more okay than it ever would have been before. And while I'm still practicing the formula that I got from Sheikh Tanner, and 
it is an authentic Zucker formula. I guess I feel less concerned now over, will I always do this formula? Is it the right formula? Did he have the right initiations? What if I got the formula but I didn't have the initiation? I'm not so concerned about all that kind of stuff now, which has been a big concern for me in the past. So let's see. So that's my talk. I do have some things to show you, and then we could do questions. So if anybody's interested, Passage from Solitude, this is the book that the Wednesday group read last spring, and this is the book that the Sending and Taking Practice came from, if anybody wants to read that. From Tassahara, I picked up some audio tapes of... Norman Fisher talking. He wasn't there while I was there, but he's one of the co-directors of the San Francisco Zen community, which runs Tassahara. And this is one of his books. And then this is a book by a Japanese monk in their lineage from Japan, who's, I think, now dead. So that stuff's from Tassahara. This is a book by Sheikh Tanner. And then I've got some stuff about New Kamaldoli with photos. Cretona, and a little postcard, Ojai community with photos, some information about Tassahara, and then a photo of Sheikh Tanner, and a couple of their newsletters. So you're welcome to look at any of this stuff, and most, some of it's in the library, some of it um, will just kind of be around here. So did anybody want to ask anything, or are we wrapped up? Jennifer, I have a question. Sure. Um, first of all, I came here and was like, okay, what's this weird place? Anyway, <laughs> and I really enjoyed your talk and the whole program about um, at the apple tree, and it's just like that's what you're meant to be. You are what you're meant to be. But my question for you is, how the heck do you know if you're a pear tree or an apple tree or a kiwi fruit bearing bush? I mean, how do you know what you are and, and have you come any closer to that or did you know before? I guess what I heard him say is that you don't have to worry about it. A pear tree doesn't have to sit there and worry about producing pears. So if you be what you are, you couldn't be anything else. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to worry about all that. That's, I, I've got to tell you, that's like the most moving thing that I've heard in a long time. So that's really, um, I guess what I want to say is thank you for sharing that. It's truly wonderful for me, personally. Thanks. I want to thank you for sharing it, too. It was very moving, very nicely done. It, oh, it sounded as if you were used to doing it. All. And I can remember, I can remember <laughs> years ago when you did your first... Uh, talk in front of the group, you know, yeah. at your class, and it's just amazing. Very nice. Thanks. What moved me most was the story about the, uh, the being killed by the, the lion. And it felt to me like whoever it was that was killed by the lion wasn't ready either. It's like not so much how we, how we get ready, although I think there are practices that help us get ready. But the fact is that we won't ever be ready. And taking a long view of our lives, like our life after our life, or where we go after it, keeps us from at least the fear when the lion jumps on us. But I hope I'm ready.
<laughs> when the time comes. That's my goal to be ready. Still. Well, I think there are people who are ready. I think Bonnie was ready. Yeah. Yeah. People are ready. I'm curious, you had an incredible level of detail of your talk, which I enjoyed immensely. Was your journal that complete, or is it basically just going from your memory? Both. Both? Yeah. So you did extensive journaling during your journal time then? Yeah. I'd just like to make one comment. I thought it was sensational. But one of the things just to point out about taking these precepts, I just think it's such a wonderful illustration that the point of the precepts is not to turn yourself into a saint, but when you actually take very rigorous precepts, how mindful they make you of what you are doing. If you hadn't taken precepts to abandon luxury or abandon distraction and so forth, then it would have been a totally different trip mentally, yeah. even though you yeah. went to the same places and all that. But this is the spotlight focuses your attention on yourself. And that's one of the great principles of the spiritual path, get to know yourself. So I thought that was a wonderful illustration that your talk gave that principle in very concrete detail. Thanks. I think we're ready for tea. Are we ready for tea? Great. <laughs>